This week's TribCast is sponsored by the Episcopal Health Foundation. From skipping medical care to financial hardship, Episcopal Health Foundation's new survey shows how COVID-19 is affecting Texans in many different ways. More at EpiscopalHealth.org. And Raise Your Hand, Texas. Listen to the new Raise Your Hand, Texas podcast, Intersect Ed, where the stories of education policy and practice meet. Visit RaiseYourHandTexas.org slash podcast. Hello and welcome to this special pollster edition of the Texas Tribune Tribcast. This is Ross Ramsey. I'm joined this week by Josh Blank, the research director for the Texas Politics Project at UT Austin, Jim Henson, head of the Texas Politics Project and co-director of the poll, and Darren Shaw, a government professor at UT Austin and the poll's other co-director. Hello, gentlemen. Let's just go from the top here. We started with a horse race question on the presidential race, Donald Trump remains in the lead in Texas. Uh, tell me what that means, what some of the internal numbers are. Well, yeah. Oh, go ahead, Darren. You start off. It means he's up. <laughs> Gosh, over to you. <laughs> yeah, that's that's about right. Yeah, no, uh, I think you know, we saw, we found Donald Trump leading Joe Biden 50% to, to 45%. I mean, I think the most you know notable internal result in this poll is really the preferences of independents and how they compare to the 2016 election. And one of the advantages of doing this poll you know, regularly throughout the year and then doing it now for many years is that we can look back and actually sort of compare some of these results. And in, tw- in the October 2016 poll, Donald Trump was up among independents uh, in Texas against Hillary Clinton, 47 to 19 in this poll, he's down 45 to 37. And ultimately, this is a shift that's affected actually all the races up and down the ballot amongst independents. Historically, we haven't talked a lot about independents in Texas, especially when Republicans are regularly winning races by at least 10 points. As the races start to get closer, I think we're, we're, we're paying a little bit more attention to how this group is, is feeling. There was a huge gender gap here. I'm, I'm curious about. Um, Trump was leading Biden with men by 16 points. Biden was leading Trump by five points with women. Uh, and that that gap doesn't exist in some of the other races down the ballot, the Cornyn race and the generics that we did. Um, does, you know, what does that tell us about, you know, this, this presidential race and the state of it right now? Well, the, Anybody? The, the magnitude of the difference is actually slightly less than it is in, in other states and nationally. So there's a, there's a significant gender gap, but um, it's actually a little less pronounced in Texas than in some, I hate to say the word, other battleground states, but we can, I think, touch on Ooh. that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Um, but, uh, <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I think a lot of the, the demographic groups and party breakdowns that, uh, that we pointed to across states like Ohio or Georgia or Arizona or even in the upper Midwest, um, exist in a slightly different context in Texas. So for instance, Trump, ma- Trump maintains an advantage amongst suburban voters, a small one, not, not the kind of Republican advantage you saw during the Reagan and Bush years, but an advantage. Um, you know, Biden has a significant advantage amongst Hispanics, but Trump is drawing 27% with Hispanics, which is not sort of disastrous um, for a Republican candidate. And there's a gender gap, as you mentioned, but the gender gap is somewhat muted and, and actually what political science sort of nerd terms, it's a shift in the intercept, which is there's a significant difference, but it's displaced in a way that 
you know, makes it a little better for Trump here than other places. You know, he's dominating amongst men and not doing as well amongst women. But, you know, that's kind of the reverse in other places where, um, you know, Trump's doing okay with men and just getting crushed with women. So it's, it's, it's a, it's still got these sort of Texas characteristics to it in a lot of ways. And I just building on Josh's point, the independent number is really interesting, but I'd also point to the partisan number. I mean, you're getting such little defection amongst partisan identifiers. Uh, you know, I think it's 2% of Democrats are defecting to Trump. And I want to say, correct me guys if I'm wrong, but 6% of Republicans, four, six percent I think it's 6% of Republicans defecting uh, to Joe Biden. That, that's a party race. Um, and a party race in Texas, even though it's closer, is still a race that advantages a Republican. And one thing I would weigh in on that, I mean, just to kind of in some ways connects the two things, the two discussions so far is that, you know, we've noticed, you know, to amplify Darren's point, we've noticed uh, since the beginning of, of the Trump of the Trump presidency in Texas that one of his really stalwart sources of support are, are Republican women. And the defection rate among Republican women is lower than the defection rate, at least at this point, of Republicans overall. And I think that's one of the the correctives, I think, to some of the narratives that we're seeing out there in Texas, that somehow Republican women are abandoning Trump in droves. Now, are we going to see you know some small amount of defection, just like we're seeing a small amount of defections among Republicans overall? And may it wind up being likely that the small number of Republican defections we see are more likely to be women than men. I think that all makes sense to me. But the, the bottom line is that it's not very much. And so all of a sudden, we're talking about independence again. And I, I think we even flagged this a little bit um, a couple of polls ago. I think I missed the last one being sick. But, you know, we definitely, you know, are, are looking at independence in a way that is really a function of what Darren is saying, that the party loyalty is really baked in for the vast majority of Texas voters. And for the first time, you know, what, you know, 10% of, of, you know, not even 10%, what three or four of the 10% of independents might do in this election uh, really matters. And we're stuck with trying to, to dwell on the behavior of a group that, you know, no offense intended. I was talking to somebody earlier and it sounds like, you know, you're being kind of mean about independence. And I don't mean to be mean, but as a group, they're generally less attentive, less engaged in politics, less knowledgeable about politics. And so it's really fueling the, you know, a situation that was already very uncertain. That doesn't seem like the kind of thing a friend would say. <laughs> Darren, one of the things that you said uh, when we None were talking- None of my best friends are independents. <laughs> yeah. one, of the, one of the things that you said during the week that I thought was really interesting was that this is uh, because the party thing is so locked in, this is less of a persuasion election where you're closing by trying to get people to jump from one side to the other or from undecided to a side and more of a turnout election because um, we kind of know what, how they're going to vote if they turn out, right? Yeah, and you see that in some of the other numbers we have. Um, you know, people's self-reported intention of voting, their uh, self-rated uh, interest in the campaign are extraordinarily high. I mean, you know, usually they spike up towards mid to late October anyway, but we were, you know, Josh can speak to us. Yeah. We're at October numbers like in February. Uh, yeah, in, basically since we've been asking. <laughs> yeah, I mean, everybody's excited. Everybody wants to vote. I, just a, a quick kind of observation on this more anecdotal 
than uh, than directly derived from the poll. But in 2018, I was talking with some of the the, the Cruz people a few days before the election and, and speculating about turnout. And you know, I said, "Are you are you guys freaked out? The O'Rourke team seems really you know jazzed, and then the early vote numbers are really good for them." And and they said that uh, they thought O'Rourke's turnout was was already, as we said, baked into the cake. That they were going to show up, and that the real variable was whether Cruz's supporters were going to show up, whether he was going to perform in West Texas in a way that he needed to perform to, to win the election. And so they they said that when the election was in the high seven millions, that uh, in terms of aggregate turnout in 2018, they thought that they were in trouble. If it creeped above eight million, they actually felt very good about the race because they thought all of the you know kind of the speculative behavior was on the Republican side. I can't help but take that away in this election. I think Democrats have been wanting to vote against Donald Trump for a long, long time. And I don't think anything's going to dissuade them from doing so. But the real variable is, as you said, it's a turnout variable. And I think it's more interesting, more important, maybe, on the right than the left, at least in terms of describing you know, whether Trump squeaks by or maybe even gets upset versus whether it's more of a you know, five to seven point kind of more typical Republican win. Mm-hmm. Josh, the Senate race looks like a more typical Republican race. It looks like it's less personality driven. Um, the numbers for Cornyn and Hager have Cornyn ahead by eight. We did a generic ballot test on congressional and legislative candidates, and those were, I think, seven and eight point differences. So it looks like sort of a party line vote without personalities injected in it and without the reactions to the personality of, of Trump in it. Is there more to it than that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think so. I mean, I think, you know, at first blush, it does look like a pretty typical Texas race with Cornyn, with Cornyn up 850 to 42. You know, but I think part of, I think, what you need to do here is you kind of need to say, well, compared to what? And, and and how do we, like, contextualize this? I mean, ultimately, there's still about a, a quarter of likely Democratic primary voters who don't know who MJ Hager is. So they don't even know who the Democratic candidate is. So there's one big difference between the top of the ticket and the Senate race is that everybody knows who Donald Trump is. Everybody knows who Joe Biden is and the partisans are, are in their camps. You know, what was surprising to me about this result is I think, you know, at first blush, it does look like, again, like a, a typical Texas race with the Republican up about eight. What was surprising is in the internals, you know, uh, Hager could be doing better than she is in some ways, right? So ultimately, again, if we go back to that to the 2018 polling results, because we go look at Beto O'Rourke and Ted Cruz, at the same point in time, we had Ted Cruz up on O'Rourke six points about a month out from the election. But the big difference is, is that 94% of Democrats said they were for supporting Beto O'Rourke. We had 88% say they're supporting MJ Hager. Um, you know, we had 83% of African Americans saying they're supporting Beto O'Rourke. 71% say they're supporting MJ Hager. We can put a pin in that one if we want to come back to it. Given uh, events of the week. Yeah, given the events of the week. But, you know, urban voters, same thing. 64% say that they were going to vote for Beto O'Rourke over Cruz. Right now, it's 54% say they're voting for um uh, MJ Hager over Cornyn. It's not as though Cornyn is necessarily performing so much better amongst these groups. It's just that she just doesn't have the same star power that he does. So ultimately, when I look at that race and say, you know, Cornyn was up six, and I look at this race, I'm sorry, Cruz was up six over O'Rourke, and I look at this race and say, we have, you know, Cornyn up eight over Hager, I actually think she's probably poll, she's actually probably doing better than that eight points indicates. It's hard to have a race about personalities. You kind of need personalities. <laughs> I was going to say that was the first sentence I've ever heard Cornyn and Star Power in the same sentence. No, no, no. Star Power was for O'Rourke, to be clear. Oh, okay, got it. Got no, it. please. Okay. We can edit this, right? Don't back off, Josh. <laughs> he was, uh, anyway. You know, one of, the, one of the results in this poll, um, you know, 
that I wanted to touch on was a battery on the confidence of voters in the process itself. You know, if we're having a turnout election and this depends on who shows up and who gets counted, how do people feel about getting counted in the first place? And um, there seems to be a lack of confidence here. Um, <laughs> That's a nice what, way to put what, it. One of you want to jump on this, Hanson? I don't know. I, I think Shaw's laughing. I want to make him do it. I can, All right. <laughs> for those okay, who are listening at home, we're on a Zoom call, so we're getting cues that you're not. <laughs> well, I, you know, this is the, the one thing that seems to unify Democrats and Republicans these days is the notion that the system doesn't work. Um, and so uh, the, the, what the battery reveals is that uh, maybe there's some opportunity for an entrepreneurial candidate out there, you know, to uh, to come in with, uh, oh, I don't know, uh, anti-corruption or, uh, you know, lack of trust in government message that would unify Democrats or Republicans. But as you might imagine, the, the sides are somewhat split on, uh, you know, exactly why it is that they think or what, what the main problem is with respect to you know, these institutions and how they're going to function on election day. So unsurprisingly, Republicans think the problem is, oh, there's, there are going to be lots of people out there who are not eligible to vote, who are going to show up and cast ballots. And, uh, you know, I'm obviously embellishing here, but, uh, you know, uh, uh, try to sneak in multiple mail ballots and stuff like that. And that's going to be a main source of problem. Whereas the, the Democrats are saying there's going to be voter suppression. There's lots of eligible people who are not going to be allowed to vote or their votes are not going to be counted properly. So, um, so you see this coming from both sides, um, but it's it's not you know it's not isolated. It's not like there aren't Republicans who don't think that there are other problems in the system or Democrats. Um, and uh, you know it it there is a little bit of kind of keep your powder dry here to this, which is both sides seem to be reserving the right to protest vigorously in the event that uh, you know their doomsday scenario occurs. And I, I think that's. Unfortunately, that's something that's been encouraged from the top, um, you know, and it's and it's clearly manifest here. I, I don't really just to kind of get broad about it. I, I don't think this is something that's terribly organic. I, I think you know Americans historically have always thought the government was you know, malfunctioning, it didn't work, and all these rascals are out there. But their trust in the institutions, electoral institutions, actually been fairly you know, fairly high over the last 50 or 60 years. And it's only recently, I mean, 2000 was a little bit of a wake up call, but right now you've had elites, certainly in 2016 and probably earlier, I'm just, my my memory's failing me on this, actively questioning whether, you know, votes are going to be counted fairly and, and, and undermine, you know, reserving the right to protest or contest or not accept election results. And I think the public has taken their cue, you know, and Republican Republican voters are taking their cue from Donald Trump and others, and Democrats are taking their cue from Hillary Clinton and Joe Biden and others. And th this is playing out in the numbers. Yeah, I, right. you know, I would I would add a slightly. I mean, Darren started. You start. It's funny, Darren. You started on a pretty, you know, philosophical, a little more positive note, but you kind of took us someplace that didn't play dark. Yeah, <laughs> kind of left from there, and I think I would I would go further down that road because I think you know I mean this, I know you're shot. That's a dark road. I'll follow you. You know, I mean, I think it's 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 more than this election, and it's more than even this election and the last election, in the sense that particularly in Texas, you know, we have seen a sustained discussion about. You know, from the Democratic perspective, voter voter suppression, from the Republican perspective, election integrity. But, you know, a constant beating of the drum on, 
you know, tweaking the rules of the electoral system and court challenges and public discourse over this that I think long predates the presidential level discussion and is showing up in this data, particularly. And I, and I think that, you know, like so many other things, the discussion, you know, the, you know, the, the discussion that is often fostered from the White House right now, you know, just turns the volume up to a spinal tapish 11 on something that was already there and already brewing. And I think, you know, we see that in these results. And I think, you know, if you look at the at the crosstab graphic at, at the Texas Politics Project website, you get a clearer portrait of the dip, where the different partisan soft spots are. But then if you also look at people's people's doubts about the out whether they can trust the outcome of the election and that to me it's one of the key results that you know you ask people if as, as ross mentioned if they will if they expect to be able to trust the result of the presidential if they trust the, the result of the presidential election personally and we've got 60 percent who won't say answer that question yes and that and that is actually pretty bipartisan you don't see the kind of partisan structure in that result that you see separating people out in the other result. And I think that, you know, it's going to be, you know, incumbent. I mean, you were talking about an anti-corruption candidate. It's going to be incumbent on people in charge, I think, at the state level in particular, as well as the national level, once we get clear of this election, to try to turn down the volume on this and to have some kind of a conversation that helps restore trust in this, whether it's some kind of grand bargain on on the voting process in the state that doesn't make it so starkly partisan and leave everybody, you know, at the voting level, leave everybody walking away, you know, feeling like things are really broken. Yeah, can, I, can I just add one thing real quick? First of all, the sure. the specific results, the and, and Ross and I talked about this earlier in the week before we sort of went public with the poll, but but the number that is really striking, you know, Jim and, and Josh and I were talking about numbers, basically roughly 40% of people, you know, 30 to 40% are identifying all of these different kind of concerns as extremely serious, um, which is one thing. But the one that actually scores the highest is misinformation spread on social media. That's at 60% of Texans rate that as an extremely serious issue in this election. And they were bar- bipartisan about it, right? Yes, yes. And it's, and it, you know, and I think that's, I don't know that I expected that. I didn't think much about it. Maybe Josh thought it because I think it's Josh's brainchild here. I think it's a really, it's a great way to tap into this sentiment. That is bipartisan. Um, you know, I, I, I don't know. On the one hand, just to kind of go back up the road a little bit, I, I, I think the, there's been a nice job on the part of, of the news media and others setting expectations about how quickly we'll know the results of this election, given mail-in voting. I actually think there's been a lot of journalism on that, and I think it's been very positive. People, for instance, now say that they don't expect to know the plurality of people say they don't expect to know the results on election night. Actually, maybe even a majority, I can't, I can't recall. Um, on the other hand, uh, the, the Iowa caucus disaster early this year in, in conjunction, and a lot of people have forgotten about that, but, but they shouldn't in conjunction with a lot of, you know, discussion over mail-in balloting, the pandemic and our ability to handle, you know, the voting and, and get those ballots in and counted adequately, it feeds into this. And I, I do, I really do hope along with Jim and Josh, I'm sure that we need to recover confidence in the system, but the system does have to perform. I think it will, but the system does have to perform. I mean, it's not, you know, I, I think there's a part of this that's sort of the invention 
of interested characters, right? Self-interested characters. But part of it is that there've been some problems counting votes and, and we are adjusting some things on the fly. And well, um, I just hope the system does perform well on election night because I think that will go a long way towards influencing confidence moving forward. Okay, I wanna talk about pandemics and the governor, but before we do that, we've got two more TribCast sponsors. Texas2020.org. The state doesn't provide one user-friendly resource for voting locations, candidates, and voter information. That's why there's Texas2020.org. And Texas Farm Bureau. Get the latest in farm and ranch news, wildlife, and a recap of the day's markets on Texas Ag Today, the only daily ag news podcast in Texas. More at texasfarmbureau.org slash radio. All right, let's jump back into this. The um, poll also had a large section, um, in some ways a repeat of some things we've done both in April and that the University of Texas and the Texas Politics Project did in June on the coronavirus. And I wanna pull into this some numbers that we did um, in the poll on how uh, specifically how the coronavirus has affected Greg Abbott's popularity as governor of Texas. Um, Who wants to jump in on this? Josh, you wanna go? Uh, Jim, you, you talk about that. <laughs> well, okay. Uh, <laughs> um, career move. Um, yeah, career move. I'm just trying to, th- yeah, exactly. Yeah, I want to be the director one day. But, you know, no, I, I think that, you know, the, the, the trend numbers that we see here are are pretty clear that, you know, Gov- Governor Abbott's job approval numbers have decreased through, you know, they, they peaked, they, had a, they hit a high point in April in the early phases of the coronavirus is his overall job approval numbers and his the approval numbers of how he was managing the coronavirus were very strong. I think he was net 24 positive in right. his job approval in uh, in April, but it's been pretty downhill since then. And I think that, you know, there are at least a couple of things to observe. One is if you look at his job approval numbers overall and his job approval in handling the coronavirus, he's still in net positive territory. I think he's at about plus seven right now Mm -hmm. um, in his overall job approval, but he's, I think, minus two in negative territory or so in his handling of the coronavirus. So I think it's pretty fair to conclude without, you know, whipping out the social science machine that the coronavirus, handling the coronavirus and related problems is what are are hurting him. Um, And it's hurting him you know, especially since between June and October among Republicans, where his overall job approval among Republicans has not gone down in its net, but the intensity of the job approval, the, the share of Republicans who strongly approve of the job he's doing has decreased. So it's not, you know, it's not an implosion. And I think that, you know, Demo- you know, frankly, his political opponents, I was going to say Democrats, but his political opponents, both within the Republican Party and outside of it, would like you to think that I think support for the governor has completely collapsed because of the massive dissatisfaction with his handling of the coronavirus epidemic. And that that's not the case, but he has been wounded by it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I think, think those protesters in front of the mansion on Saturday were the chairman of the Republican party and a statewide elected official from the Republican party. Yeah. Well, that's a, you know, that's a, that's another subject that the data says some things about too, but right. I think the other guys wanted to weigh in. Yeah. 
Josh. Yeah, I mean, I was, I was just going to say, I mean, that, I mean, the one uh, you sort of highlight these, you know, one side of this, which is one, the decrease in Republican intensity. So back in, you know, April, 55% of Republicans approved strongly of how he's handling the coronavirus. That dropped to 50% in June is down to 28% approving strongly today. Now, again, they're not all moving to disapproval. They still approve. It's just the intensity. But the other thing is, I mean, is really often in a lot of ways, I mean, he has pretty, you know, I would say okay job approval ratings. I mean, I think people have highlighted, you know, relative to other governors in other states facing the coronavirus, he hasn't really seen the surge uh, in job approval that some other governors have seen. But the thing is, is that Abbott's job approval numbers, you know, as strong as they are, have, have often relied on the support of, of Democrats, not overwhelming support of Democrats, but somewhere between, you know, let's say 15 and 30 percent of Democrats to approve of the job he's doing. And that's usually happened around upticks around actually crises. It's been around school shooting. It's been around hurricanes. It happened at the beginning of his handling of the coronavirus. Ultimately, you know, he's lost that support. And I'm not I'm not certain he's going to gain it back. I mean, we'll see. But ultimately, I think, you know, this might sort of set a new sort of expectation baseline for him going forward. As a lot of Democrats who generally thought that, you know, he was managing things well, and especially these crises, you know, look at the biggest crisis he has to manage and really has been the Texas's, you know, chief and clear uh, leader of the response. You know, they're just not evaluating, you know, the job he's doing strongly. And I don't think, you know, I don't know if he's going to get the benefit of the doubt anymore. Yeah. Darren, you got thoughts on that? No, I was going to point out the intensity stuff, which I think is critical. You know, he's uh, most recently the overall ratings, 20% strongly approved, 24% strongly disapproved. So that's minus four. And, you know, just at the, at the height of the, you know, pen, with the opening of the pandemic, he was at 31 strongly approved, 18 strongly disapproved. That's plus 13. Um, and, you know, his numbers right before the last reelect were 36 strongly approved, 23 strongly disapproved. That's plus six, uh, plus 13. So, you know, it's it's he's tend to kind of operate in that plus eight to plus fifteen strongly approved to strongly disapproved range, um, and, and now he's a little underwater. Um, and, and the question, as Josh suggests, moving forward, is how durable is that? Okay, uh, we just have a few minutes left. I'm I'm wondering if there's something in the poll. You know, the poll there's a lot in this poll and a lot that we haven't covered here, but we just have a half hour. So, is there something in this poll that you wanted to point out that really jumped out at you? We just um, we'll go down the list. Start with Darren. Uh, I I love and sound like a broken record here for those of any those of you uh, those five or so listeners who have uh, you, you know an institutional memory of what we've said on this podcast before. Oh God! Um, but let me entertain them. Let me let me let me preach to that small group of uh, diehards out there. Um, first of all, the persistence of immigration and border security as 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 a top issue for Texans is is just always kind of mesmerizing to me. So even in the in the face of a pandemic um, and an economic collapse, we have, you know, what's the most important issue facing Texas? COVID-19, 22%. Second, immigration. Third, border security. If you add the two up, that's 16%. And the next is political corruption or leadership, that's 7%. So it's, it's not just that it's the second biggest issue, it's easily the second biggest issue and, and only pales in comparison to the pandemic. So I, I continue to think that's amazing. Another thing I'd point to just to people who are looking at this at the TRIB or at the UT site is it's it's a really nice feature to have this longitudinal data on um, ratings of the economy and confidence in government. So I'd encourage people who are interested to go and take a look at how our ratings on the economy now compared to how Texans felt in 2008 and nine at the, the, the nadir of the economic collapse, um, the, 
values I think are really interesting to watch that trend over time. And that's something that we're, we think is a real virtue of the poll at this point. Josh, how about you? Yeah, it's hard to pick. I mean, there's so many possibilities. You know, I mean, one of the things we haven't talked about here is we also asked, you know, in addition to these questions about, you know, the economy and the election and COVID is we, we continued some, some questions about uh, race, racism and policing. And, and one of the things that, you know, we were interested in is this, this sort of discussion about, you know, public safety and police funding. So we asked two questions. One, basically, you know, how safe or unsafe do you feel in the neighborhood where you currently live? People say they're very safe, you know, somewhat safe, somewhat unsafe or very unsafe. And then we also asked people, do you think police budget should be increased, left the same, or decreased? We could say increase a lot, decrease, but ultimately just you know, increased or decreased. And you know, a couple of just headlines from this. First of all, across uh, all groups of Texans, Democrats, Independents, Republicans, white, black, Hispanic, urban, suburban, rural, the vast, vast majority of Texans feel safe in the neighborhoods where they live. So to the extent that there's rhetoric about you know, concerns over public safety, you know, uh, 90% of Texans who say they live in the suburbs say that they feel safe in their communities. It doesn't mean that there aren't important differences. 53% of white voters felt very safe, 24% of black voters felt very safe, and 26% of Hispanic voters felt very safe. There's definitely a gap in feelings of safety. But ultimately, you know, this idea of, you know, the hellscape that we're living in is only mental, it's not physical, is what the poll tells me, number one. The other piece to this is interesting, and you can look at this by, you know, these you know, this is a police budget question. And first, you know, the majority of Democrats do not, in Texas, don't want to decrease police budgets. 35% say they would decrease them. 35% say they would leave them the same. 20% say they would increase them. I think only 10% of Democrats say that they would inc- decrease police budgets a lot. So the idea that, you know, Democrats were at large are trying to take away police budgets, not true. Unsurprisingly, you know, 94% of Republicans feel safe in their neighborhoods and 63% of them want to increase police budgets, the most of any group. So there's no rational basis. I mean, in short, there's no rational basis to this discussion. We knew this. We knew that the defund the police, you know, rhetoric was a fiasco to begin with on the part of Democrats, really, uh, that Republicans have gladly picked up. But ultimately, I think, you know, I mean, even the president last night was saying, hey, I I saved your suburbs at his rally and stuff. But, you know, I don't know who he's talking to because it doesn't appear that there is a a large swath of, of anybody who is really heavily concerned about safety at this point. Okay. Jim, you want to wrap it up? Yeah, I, I would say, and I'll, I'll, I'll try to be quick. Um, I, you know, I think it, the COVID batteries that we've done on people's attitudes toward the pandemic, their sense of their evaluation of policy of leaders and their behavior is among the most important work that we've done in 11 or 12 years of doing this. Or, yeah, I guess, I guess we started this 12 years ago, Darren. You realize that 13 years ago? And, um, you know, and I, and I would really urge people to look closely at that. What I really pull out of that that's interesting to me at the intersection of public health, but also the politics you were just talking about with uh, the protests at the governor's mansion, is it's giving us a good, rough estimate of what the, the, the kind of boundaries of those who are really so skeptical of the pandemic of the of the virus and its reality that they're willing to resist you know their own party their own governor and a lot of the public health measures and you know so if you look within the Republican party you know about about 24% reported not at all being not at all concerned about the virus um 29% said it was not a problem at all 18% said it was a minor problem 43% said that they would not get a low-cost vaccine. Somewhere in there, 
is the intersection of Governor Abbott's political problem and, frankly, a public health problem. And I think that the data is, provide us an interesting way to begin to think about that as we move forward. Okay. We could go for a long time. We did uh, nine stories on this. There are a bunch of uh, there's stories up on our site, the texastribune.org. There's stories up on the Texas Politics Project site. URL, please. Texaspolitics.utexas.edu. Okay. Um, charts, graphs, all of that kind of stuff. The crosstabs are up. You can get the data underlying all of this at UT's site. Um, thanks to Spoon for our theme music and to the Episcopal Health Foundation and Raise Your Hand Texas. Texas2020.org, the Texas Farm Bureau, our sponsors this week. On behalf of Josh, Jim, Darren, and our producer, Michael Ray, this is Ross. Thanks for listening. Do I have to talk to you? Do I have to talk to you?